Thank you, Nessia. I think uh, the Bible says, blessed uh, is the man who has uh, many children because they'll be like arrows that he can shoot. And uh, Nessia is certainly an arrow that, that hits the mark. And I appreciate her for that. There's another uh, value in having children, and that is uh, being able to understand how God views us as his children. I have a picture here of one of my other children. <laughs> and uh, Benaya is a wonderful son. He's five years old. And uh, actually, Joy, would you come here, be a wonderful son, and uh, pass these out, please? Thank you. And uh, he's, he's, uh, he's five years old, but uh, he doesn't quite want to live up to his age. So he, uh, he's learned to tie his shoes, put on his socks and tie his shoes, which is a big accomplishment. If you had the child, one of the first goals you have for your children is to be able to take care of some of the, of the basic uh, needs, so you as parents are relieved from having to take care of those needs, and one of them is getting dressed, and usually putting on your shoes is one of the final things, you know, you want to see your child being able to do, and then ideally you don't have to help them anymore in the morning, right? They can just do it all themselves. But uh, sometimes I find when I ask my son, Ben, to, uh, to, to put on his shoes, he says, no, I can't. Now, I know that he can't, and uh, it's more him refusing to grow up. And you might say, well, that's kind of cute. You know, he's just five years old. Give it a break. But look at the next picture. And, uh, you know, we're laughing, but uh, this, is, this is real. It's, uh, well, okay, I need to be careful when I call it real. Some people call this adult baby syndrome. And that is when grown-ups really do want to be treated as, as babies or as little kids instead of taking responsibility for their own actions. Now, it's not recognized in the psychiatric community as a real problem uh, because they, they, they don't quite believe these people, right? They think that they're just trying to get away with it as opposed to there being something intrinsically that's make them unable to cope with adulthood. There are people who have that if you have... There are certain conditions that will prevent you from maturing properly. That's not the case here. This is the case of someone who really doesn't want to grow up. And uh, that can be a danger for us as Christians, which is why we talk about it this morning. Uh, it was especially prevalent in the Corinthian church. Not this particular condition, but them not growing up in Christ, not, not maturing Christ as they should. So let's, uh, with that uh, introduction, let's read the passage. We're into chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians and verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, 
and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. As we look at uh, this passage, we want to be careful that we are not sitting as judges and uh, laughing at the Corinthians for their troubles. We want to take what benefits we can to ourselves, right? As we look at the scripture, if there's nothing for us, then, you know, why are we here? So there is, um, in this passage, what I recognize as seven areas where uh, Paul is challenging the Corinthians on their growth or lack of growth. So that's something we can look at. I could uh, try to measure how much my child has grown by using a measuring tape and seeing how tall they are. Or I can look at different ways in which they've, they've grown. Uh, psychiatrists have a different, um, different uh, questions or ways they evaluate people to see how they're growing or developing, are they developing in a normal way. So look at this as maybe seven different areas in which we as Christians should be growing, and you'll find that you are somewhere in the scale of zero to ten in these areas. And just because I'm here teaching doesn't mean that I've mastered these areas myself, okay? So these are areas in which all of us <coughs> can grow, and, uh, and as we look at the Corinthians and where they were at, we certainly want to be thinking about ourselves. How am I doing in my spiritual growth? Am I growing as Christ wants me to grow? So I gave a handout too. You should have a handout. And uh, this is to help you keep track of me and make sure I'm following my notes. And uh, so for number one, you could put, and I left blanks, for you to fill out, it makes sure you're actually paying attention. So number one, I, I said God wants us to grow up, right? Just like I want my son to grow up, God wants us as his spiritual children to grow up. This is not a salvation question. We are saved when we trust in the blood of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. It's a question of spiritual growth. Are we growing spiritually the way God wants us to? Okay, so uh, question number one, it's depending which version of my notes I have, hopefully you have the most recent one. I said, what foods do you like to eat? And I have a picture to go with that as well. So I've had uh, a two-year-old uh, niece visiting at my house uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she was wandering around with a bottle of, full of milk, right? That's what she liked to have. But maybe you are looking with more interest at that steak dinner underneath it. And if you do, and you're older than, than a few years old, then that's a good sign. 
right? You've learned that there's other foods that you can enjoy. God gave us the gift of being able to appreciate different flavors and different textures. And as a result, as we get older, we appreciate additional foods. Now, we might still appreciate milk. There is nothing wrong with milk if you like milk. But hopefully, as you've grown up, you've come to appreciate other foods as well. God wants us to be the same way spiritually. Paul said, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And that was the case with the, with the Corinthians. When a believer is saved, I don't immediately try to instill in them every doctrine of Christ in the Bible. I realize they may not be ready for that. right? And I, I'll spend time talking about God's love, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And these are a wonderful truth, and we can continue to appreciate them. And in fact, we will appreciate them more and more as uh, we grow up in Christ. But there are other truths in the Word of God that we can enjoy and we can appreciate. And so um, my question, what foods do you like to eat? Hopefully you've, you've found that in the Word of God there's more and more things that you're enjoying and appreciating about God as you're maturing in Christ. Right? We want to be spending time in God's Word and coming to know Him better and better uh, through His Word. Okay, second area is how do you react when someone has something you don't? And uh, again, there's a picture to go with it. Uh, my children play with the neighbor's children, and sometime Joy will come to me and I describe to me a toy one of the other children in the neighborhood is playing with and express a desire right, for that toy. And uh, that's not just something children do. Uh, my wife reminded me some years ago, uh, we had this, when we got married, we had this small, I think it was like a 19-inch TV uh, analog, the one that has the lines running across. And uh, we went and visited one of the other saints, and they showed us a, a movie, and they had, you know, I don't know, a 32-inch TV with, uh, you know, much better definition. And, you know, my wife saying, maybe we should get one of those, right? Um, what does the Bible say? Uh, it says this in 1 Timothy 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. What is it that God wants for us? He wants us to be content with what we have. Right? I don't have to have a big screen, high-definition TV. Right? My boy doesn't need to have the latest toys that other kids in the neighborhood have. Uh, they have everything they need. In fact, they have a room full of toys in my house. Right? There's no lack of toys that my children have. And, and we have enough, according to the Bible, if we have food and clothing. Right? If there's somebody here who doesn't have food and clothing, you know, come see me after the meeting. And uh, we as, as deacons in this 
Church will make sure that you don't go hungry and poorly clothed, right? Um, if we, instead of being content, uh, seek after these things, we're being distracted, right? I don't want my child to spend his, his childhood chasing toys, right? That's not going to be to his benefit, right? There's, there's a lot more important things in lives than the toys that you can play with. And God doesn't want us chasing uh, the baubles of this world. This world has a lot of shiny things, uh, pretty things, things that are attractive to us, but they don't have eternal value, right? And if we are spending our time seeking for those things, we are losing uh, the gain, the things we can really gain in this life and instead fall into foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in distraction and perdition. We don't want that. We want to be content with what God gives us and seek the things that he wants us to have. The third area Paul speaks about, uh, and, and by the way, I've, I've entered now into uh, verse uh, 3. I said, for you are still, Paul said, for you are still carnal, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So I just covered the envy. Uh, the next one is strife. And my question to you is, how do you respond to opposition? Uh, very often, my wife and myself uh, hear some squawking in the background, and we turn around and find something like this. Um, I didn't take pictures of my own kids, but, uh, you know, it doesn't look... You should have, yeah. Yeah, I do all the time, that's true. I, I don't need to take pictures when you do that. When you're doing that, there's something more important than taking pictures. Um, but uh, again, this is something we can do as adults. It appears, the fact that Paul is saying this to the Corinthian, that this was happening in the Corinthian church. Uh, in uh, chapter 1, he says that it was reported to him from those of, of Chloe's household that there were contentions among them. Uh, people were dividing into who's the greatest Bible teacher of all time. Some said it was Paul. Some said it was Apollo. Some said it was Cephas. Others claimed it was Christ. Right? They were somehow fighting with each other instead of uh, behaving in a more mature way. What is it that God wants us to do? Uh, first, I thought of sharing Christ's example. And of course, really the standard as we talk about spiritual growth is Christ himself. We want to become more like Christ. And in this particular example, this is taken from Matthew 12, uh, just to give you the background, uh, Jesus just uh, went into a synagogue and he healed someone on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were very upset and uh, they went out to plot against Jesus. And Jesus could have stood his ground and said, no, I am doing what's right, and this is my place, and if you guys want to have a shouting match, I will give you a shouting match. But that's not what Jesus does. It says in verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Jesus left when he knew that's what they were doing, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, yet he warned them, that is the multitude, 
not to make him known, not to tell the Pharisees where he was at. Right? He didn't want to have a, a yelling match with the Pharisees that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. The key verse is 19. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus never got into a shouting match with anyone. Right? Now he taught faithfully the word of God. He went where his message was not welcome, but he would withdraw from those kind of contentions. Right? That was not effective. When I'm yelling and the other person is yelling, which of us is listening? Neither one. So it's just not an effective type of ministry. And Jesus was always effective in his ministry and very careful to, to do things in a way that will have maximum profit. Timothy is instructed in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So, Timothy also is told to, be, to not quarrel, but be gentle to all. That is the mature Christian way, that is the effective way to try to teach someone the truth. I'm sorry, I, I haven't done a very good job in tracking with, uh, with my notes. Let me review them. My daughter rebuked me last time. I said I gave these notes, and she spent most of the time trying to figure out what the words were instead of listening to my message, and that's not my desire. So number one was God wants us to grow up. Number two was what foods do you like to eat? Number three was um, how do you react when someone has something you don't? Remember, that's envy. We are taught not to envy. Number four was how do you respond to opposition, and that shouldn't be with strife. And then number five, uh, is what is your relationship like with other believers? What is your relationship like with other believers? In the Corinthian church, there was division, right? Paul tells them that. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not still carnal? And again in verse 4, For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not 
carnal. So there was this division of uh, who was the greatest Bible teacher of all time, right? That was uh, creating a splitter in the Corinthian church. And yet listen to this prayer that Christ prayed. This is known sometimes as his uh, high priestly prayer for the believers. It's found in John 17. It's done in his last hour, or possibly hours, with the believers. And he says this, I do not pray for these alone, meaning not only for the disciples that were present at that moment with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus today, Odds are that you became a believer because of the word of these disciples, right? Because that's what's recorded in the New Testament. So Jesus is praying specifically for you in this prayer, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they, that is we, all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. I don't know if anyone counted how many times the Lord in this passage was praying for our unity as believers, that we might be one, even as God the Father and God the Son are one. Uh, so if this is such a precious, uh, a precious thing for the Lord Jesus, that there be unity among believers, among his followers, uh, that should be our desire as well. Not as in the Corinthian church they were dividing and splitting, arguing about who, who was most worthy to follow, but we should always seek unity among the believers. Paul said to them, I urge you that you all speak the same thing, that you all be united in mind and judgment. And we should always strive for that as believers. Okay. Uh, number six, I have, which nature are you living out? Which nature, that's spelled N-A-T-U-R-E, Joey, are you living out? Uh, the Bible says that uh, we have two natures. One of them is referred to here as carnal, and the word carnal simply means flesh, our flesh. Do you have flesh? I have flesh. And uh, that is the nature that we were born with. But the Bible teaches us that it is a fallen nature. This was not God's ideal for us when he created us. When Adam and Eve sinned, the nature of sin entered human nature. And we reflect it uh, as in that picture. Now, nobody will be upset at either child, right? Because we consider this to be completely normal, right? For babies to want to have their toys. And if you see another baby with your toy, then you take it from that baby. And by the way, uh, this toy is mine, 
and uh, if I see it, it is mine. So that is the way that we are born, and uh, we might, uh, we continue to carry it with us, right, even as we grow older. But believers also have a new nature that's given to us when we are saved, and God wants us to live by that new nature. We have it for us in Second uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So God doesn't want us to continually live out our fleshly nature. He wants us to live out the divine nature. Jesus came to save us not just from the penalty of our sins, which is you know, wonderful enough, but he also came to save us from the power of sin. He came to give us the ability to live as God, meaning with God's nature, with God's thoughts. How can we tell if we're living out our fleshly nature or our new divine nature? Uh, Bill uh, had a, a nice way of, uh, of summarizing the nature of the flesh by reversing the order of the letters. If you spell flesh backward, it comes out as self. Well, H is silent, and <laughs> self is less. Thinking about myself is my natural nature, right? Just like that, those babies in that picture, they were thinking about themselves. That is the natural nature. That is our natural nature. To think of others is God's nature. How do we know? Because we look at Jesus, right? Jesus came into this world, and who was he thinking about? He was thinking about you and me, right? He lived that a life completely focused on others. And that is how God wants us to live. And he gave us the nature and the power to do that, right? And part of spiritual growth is learning to live out that nature, the new nature that God has given us a life that is other-oriented instead of self-oriented. Okay, number seven, I said, are you following the right example? And uh, my children uh, play with other children. And uh, often they'll bring home a certain wood that uh, my wife and I will challenge them on and say, we don't say that. And uh, they will say, but so-and-so says it. Or all the kids at school say it. That is following the wrong example. We are told in Ephesians chapter 4, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles or nations or the world walks in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, 
because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. What are we called? We're called Christians. And the word Christians literally means little Christs. And it was given first to the believers in Antioch because they were trying to emulate Jesus. They were trying to live as Jesus. The example we should seek to follow is Jesus, right? not the world around us. Number eight, this is the last one, but I cheated, so I've added kind of four underneath this larger category. Uh, how do we think about Christian work or workers? How do we think about Christian work or workers? It's clear that the Corinthians had a problem in how they were thinking about spiritual workers. You can see it from how they were divided over them, right? Some said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. They had a problem with how they viewed these spiritual teachers, these apostles. And uh, so Paul corrects them here in verses 5 through 9. He says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Uh, about uh, three months ago, I went to Lucky's. Sorry. And, uh, oh, it's okay now. It doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um, and I bought a uh, six-pack of tomato plants. And uh, I, I went to my garden, and I think perhaps with help, of one of my children, I, I planted them. It took probably about a minute or two. You dig a little hole, you put a little bit of fertilizer in there, and then you put the plant, you pack the dirt around the plant. And, uh, and then I, I watered, I you know, have a, a drip system in the back, so it was relatively e easy to set up. Occasionally I would ask my son on hot days to go and give him an extra dose of water. And, uh, and now I have this nice, bush of tomatoes uh, growing out in my backyard. My uncle was visiting a couple weeks ago, and uh, he was literally drooling over this bush of tomato plant. I think they planted some tomatoes in their house, and they didn't do nearly as well. Uh, now, will I give credit to myself for these tomatoes? And I'll say, these tomatoes are so wonderful because I am so wonderful, right? It was my, you know, extreme skill in planting these tomato plants that resulted in this wonderful produce. Oh, it was watering them just right, you know, carefully planning and calculating the amount that they needed. Uh, or positioning them just so with understanding how the sun direction was going to change over time and the season that resulted in this case. No, I wasn't that skilled. I have to say God gave the increase. And the same is true with our spiritual work. Paul planted, meaning he went to Corinth and he shared the gospel. Right? He shared the same gospel we share today, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. That's the gospel he shared. And then Apollos came behind him and he watered. 
right? Which means he taught, right? He defended the doctrines of Christ. And now you have a thriving church in Corinth. You know, many, you know, people have come to know the Lord. You have a growing, prospering church. Why is it? Is it because Paul is such an amazing teacher? Is it uh, because uh, Apollos is such an amazing orator? No, it was God who gave the increase. Right? And that's what uh, we need to recognize with spiritual work. All spiritual work sees its increase from God. Now, it doesn't mean we don't work. It doesn't mean I don't. If I didn't go and buy those plants and plant them, would I have a nice bush? Well, I may, because last year I planted some. Sometimes you get uh, these volunteers, as we call them. Right? But generally speaking, you have to do your part. Right? I needed to plant them. I needed to provide them with water. And in the same way, Paul needed to go and preach the gospel, and Apollos needed to go and teach. Um, but, but the uh, fruitfulness of the church uh, is the result of God's work. Right? God's work in the midst. You don't want to confuse the worker or even the work with the fruit that comes out. You need to recognize this is a work that God has done. This is fruit that God has borne. So that was, uh, that was A, sorry, that was 8A. 8A was to whom goes the credit for their success or for the work's success. And the answer is God. 8B is how do they deal with one another? So if you were to look at the Corinthians and how the Corinthians were following these teachers, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, you imagine that Paul and Apollos were there shaking their fists on each other and each one declaring how he was better than the other one and people should follow them. That was perhaps the way of the world. Remember, there's a mix of worldliness. If, if you followed our track here through, through 1 Corinthians so far, you see that Paul was bringing up this division early on in chapter 1, and then he goes into a, a, what we might almost think of as a bunny trail, talking about worldly wisdom, right? And then back again, Matt had uh, last week talked us about the true wisdom, the wisdom of God. So it's clearly that the Corinthians were confused about uh, or mixing the world's ideas of wisdom uh, with that of the church. And probably Greek philosophers would stand up on, uh, on platforms and explain why they were better and then the teacher who was there a minute before them. So you'd almost imagine in, in the mind of the Corinthians that Paul and Apollos were the same way. Paul comes and he preaches and then Apollos comes and Apollos preaches and they were somehow thinking maybe each of them is seeking his own followers. <clears throat> and yet Paul tells us that now he who plants and he who waters are one which means he and Apollos were really united in thought, right? And they really worked together as a team. And we see it, I forget if it's the end of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, Paul even tells them, you know, I've asked Apollos to come and minister to you guys. We're working as a team, right? So a true spiritual workers and spiritual work is done in a team. We're not competing with each other. We work together. 8C, I have, what does God reward them for? What is it that God rewards 
Christian workers for, or what Christian work does God reward? Sometimes uh, we would think of fruit. Uh, Billy Graham, I showed a picture of his at the beginning. Uh, he was, he had uh, packed auditoriums, coliseums, filled with uh, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people gathered to hear him. And after he preached, often thousands went forward to receive the Lord. And you might say, well, Billy Graham, here's someone the Lord will really reward, because look at the results of what he accomplished. I have a picture of another guy, and I'll test your knowledge, see if anybody knows who that is. And that's okay. If I would have seen his picture, I wouldn't have known either. But his name is William Carey. William Carey was uh, uh, an English uh, shoemaker. Uh, I think I, I could be confusing him. Was he a shoemaker or was he a teacher? Shoemaker. shoemaker. I think he was a shoemaker. I think his father was a teacher, but he became an apprentice to a shoemaker. And he became saved. And uh, he became convinced that Christians were not doing their jobs. In, uh, in preaching the gospel to every creature, right? Christ gave us the command. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And, uh, and he said that we're not doing it. You know, we're, we're Westerners. This is about 200 years ago, the early 1800s. You know, here we are, we're sitting at home. We're ministering to our fellow British citizens, but who's going abroad? We will send our merchants they had uh, the, uh, the, I think the, uh, the, what is it, the Indish, Indies, uh, West Indies Company or something like that. I mean, they, made, they did a lot of business in India and other places. They would send people around the world to make money, but no one went with the gospel. And that really bothered him. And so uh, he, he started, you know, these meetings, like talking about this is what we need to do. And finally, he had to do it himself, right? You know, the best thing to do is, if you want people to do something is be a good example. So <clears throat> he packed up, took his family and, uh, and children. Um, I'm not sure. I think he already had children by then. Uh, to India. And there he labored. Uh, he didn't have packed coliseums. People didn't want to hear his message. Uh, he, he labored for seven years before he saw his first convert. And, and yet here is someone who clearly poured his life out uh, to Christ. And, uh, and will God reward Billy Graham more than he rewards uh, this person? No. It says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Notice, it's not the fruit that God is rewarding, but the labor. And that makes sense if you think about it. If I was a farmer, I owned a field, right? And I would hire people to come in, and uh, some people would be laying down the pipes in advance for watering, then other people would come and till the ground, and others would come and sow the seed, and then others will come and do weeding, and then finally somebody will come at the end and actually reap the harvest. I'm not going to give more money to the person who reaped the harvest because he didn't do more work than these other people. I will reward each one according to his labor. And God is the same way, and he rewards us based on what we do for him, not on the results. So 
whether for seven years you had packed coliseums and thousands of people came to receive the Lord, or for seven years you were tilling hard hearts in India, God will give you the same reward. In fact, it's very possible that the person who saw less result was working harder, and God will reward that person more, independently of the fact that the results didn't show to our eyes. Right? This is how God is. He is fair. He repays us based on our labors. Right? Now, this doesn't to say God owes us anything, but God, in his pleasure, desires to reward us right, for serving him. We serve him out of love for what he has done for us, and God is pleased to reward us for our labor for him. <clears throat> okay, finally, 8D. For whose benefit are they laboring, or are we laboring? Again, the Corinthians may have had the thought that Paul and Apollos were seeking their own glory, because that's certainly how they were dividing over them. Uh, and yet not so Paul and Apollos. He says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Jesus um, was ministering, and it says that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, for they were like sheep. Uh, they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. And then he says to his disciples, uh, truly, or the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. God is concerned for his people. And uh, he wants spiritual laborers who are concerned for his people. When Paul and Apollos went and served in Corinth, they had no thought for their own glory. They had thought for God's people. They were concerned about the spiritual well-being of the Corinthians. And, uh, and therefore, uh, the Corinthians were doing them a disfavor when they were dividing over them. That wasn't their concern. Paul and Apollos did not want followers of them. They wanted uh, believers, healthy believers in Corinth. That was their priority. Okay, how did you do in the test? Where do you lie on the scale of spiritual maturity? Uh, I have a picture, and uh, maybe somebody can tell me what that is. All right, I see Nessia's hand up. What is it, Nessia? Right, so when we uh, moved into this house, the house we live in now, we've been there for about six years, my wife took several sheets of paper and she taped them on uh, one of the doors, the doors of our closet, and uh, we had the kids stand next to those, uh, next to that door, and we would mark how tall they were on that piece of paper. And then every birthday, and sometime more frequently, we would stand them next to it again, and we would put a line and uh, see how much they've grown. And they've, the children uh, ha, have grown to really appreciate uh, that, and they're very excited every time we put them next to the door again to see how much they have grown. Um, 
Growing, spiritual growth takes time. I don't expect, God doesn't expect. Uh, hopefully you don't expect to have grown a lot through listening to a message for one hour. But uh, what I'm hoping that this message will do is give you that same desire that my children have for spiritual growth, a desire to uh, be able to measure yourself maybe a year from today and see how have I grown? Have I become more like Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. We thank you that uh, you desire our spiritual growth. It gives you joy, and uh, it brings joy to our heart, Lord, to become more like your Son, the Lord Jesus. We ask for your continued and faithful work in our lives that we might become more like him every day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.